Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to um, another episode of Mosaic Station. And we're happy to feature a short series this month for Native American Heritage Month, where we are spotlighting uh, various Native faculty members um, at San Jose State. Um, so uh, joining us today is um, Alicia Raglan, who uh, is uh, a lecturer here at San Jose State, um, amongst many roles that uh, she plays. Um, so uh, we're going to be able to talk for a little bit about uh, your experiences, your interests, um, and uh, various other things, and, and we'll see where we go. So if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks. Um, my name is Alicia Marie Ragland. I am the tribal liaison for AB275 here, and um, uh, as well as a part-time lecturer. So um, AB275 is a repatriation law that was recently passed, and it amends um, the California Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. So it, it places the onus on institutions to begin the process of repatriation, uh, rather than uh, making it tribes responsibilities to, you know, contact the institutions that are housing their ancestors and request them back. So this is a law that was written by James Ramos. He's an indigenous um, member of the California Senate, and he, um, he passed this law with the intention of repatriation, which I think is important. And um, so we're, we're looking forward to full repatriation within the next um, couple of years for San Jose State and all the CSUs. Awesome. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, um, if, you're, if you're up for it, we'll talk a little bit about your work um, as the uh, tribal liaison on campus. Um, but first, I would love to hear a little bit more about your background, um, you know, uh, a little bit about, you know, um, uh, how you got into this work. Mm -hmm. Sure. So. I have a matrilineal Chumash heritage, um, and I'm third generation Sicilian on my dad's side, as well as my mother's um, paternal side. So as far as we know, um, our Chumash heritage is through women all the way down the line, as far as our genealogy has shown us, which I think is really cool. That's awesome. Uh, just for people who may not be familiar, is there a kind of a geographical sense you can give folks about um, where Chumash uh, land would be? Yeah, so Chumash territory um, is all of the areas from Santa Barbara all the way down to um, Los Angeles, and it borders on the south, the Tongva territory. Um, it also en encompasses the Channel Islands, and that is where our oldest, my family's oldest, um, uh, DNA line actually comes from a woman, again, on the uh, island of Limu, or so-called Santa Cruz Island in the Channel Islands. That's awesome. The, um, it's, it's really fantastic that you have the, uh, the line that you can trace through. Um, I know that a lot of people don't necessarily have um, the family history that they can kind of point to and, and uh, you know, learn more about and research more about. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's important for me to say too that I'm I'm what is sometimes referred to as a reconnecting native. So I didn't grow up with the Shumash community. Um, 
I, the only community that I grew up with was other people who are in my family and our extended family. Um, and so uh, some years after my grandmother passed away, um, and this is true for a lot of my native friends that I've spoken with, is that we often reconnect to our native side um, as a way to connect with someone um, in our life who has passed on and to maintain a connection with them through our shared identity that we inherited from that person. Um, and that's definitely uh, the case for my family. And pretty um, serendipitously, we were in, we got into contact with um, some long lost relative who was also doing um, their own reconnecting. Um, and they were able to share that information that I that I just shared with you about um, our DNA coming from the so-called Santa Cruz Island. And um, she was able to share with us the genealogy work that she got done um, right around the same time that we were doing that same work as well. So we were able to connect with family um, that we would have otherwise maybe never encountered um, if we hadn't come back into this reconnecting aspect of our lives so that was really special when we met her yeah that sounds amazing actually to be able to have that connection you know I think uh the family connection is so important and being able to kind of establish or re-establish these connections is so important um so you talked a little bit about the work that you do um I think uh you know we we probably uh have a few students who don't quite understand um, just the value of what repatriation is or means. If you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, uh, the value of repatriation um, and and uh, what it means for, uh, particularly for the um, um, those who identify um, within the tribes um, uh, that are uh, being honored by the act of repatriation. Yeah, so um, it's a it's a kind of work that should not ever be a, a job. Like this shouldn't have ever happened in the first place. Um, I don't know any other group of folks who have to fight for their ancestors to remain at rest in the ground. You know, this is something that, as far as I know, is specific to Native groups and. Um, it's also it's almost mind-boggling that we have to make the case for why our ancestors shouldn't be disturbed in in their death in their afterlife. Um, but it is of supreme importance to any tribe, all tribes. Not that I can speak on behalf of anyone else, but I know that this is um, it's in the forefront of everybody's minds. Um, not only is it um, spiritually and, um, you know, for any sort of uh, cultural cosmology, um, it's really important for um, spiritual purposes, but it's also just a reminder of how, um, how entrenched colonialism still is and how we are still undergoing this process of reclaiming everything that was taken from us, including our people. And in some cases, specifically in the Bay Area, um, so not my ancestry, but we're talking about cemeteries that were threatened in the 60s, that living people had ancestors um, in, you know, uh, just a few generations removed. So it's not necessarily something that um, 
happened hundreds of years ago, or you know, um, it's it's very recent in, in some cases. Those aren't the collections that San Jose State houses, but it's just a kind of a overview of um, uh, the fight to bring the ancestors back home and um, how they're not always so far removed through, through space or through time. Sometimes it's, it's actually recent. And so this is a, it's a deeply painful thing to hold every day. Um, and not, absolutely being in the facility where the ancestors are being stored, it's a very uncomfortable space. And I knew that going into this work, I knew that. Um, and so there's things that I, try to weave into, you know, my practice to, to keep myself safe and, um, you know, to, to allow myself to process that stuff. And I'm, I'm really grateful for um, my colleagues in the anthropology department, um, specifically the ones that I work with for, for this NAGPRA project, which is um, Dr. Charlotte Sinceri and Dr. Roberto Gonzalez. They're very supportive. Um, I feel like anything that I need, I can ask them for it. And, and, um, you know, they would, they would do their best to, to support me. Um, but bringing the ancestors home is number one on any tribe that we consult with. Um, we're, we're fortunate that um, so far in our consultations, um, we have a lot of support um, for repatriation, obviously, and um, we're gonna do everything in our power to help them um, get the ancestors where they want to go, and to put them um, in the ground um, at rest for good on protected land so that this will never happen again. Uh, it's a heavy, it's a heavy role that you play. And I think it's, um, it's really um, a lot of burden that you're shouldering uh, through this. Um, so I think it's uh, really fantastic that you have such a, um, you know, empathetic and caring viewpoint. Um, it can be um, so simple to try to reduce this to just a spreadsheet or, or something. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, part of the harm, you know, was um, initially not treating remains as people. And it would be so easy to not treat these remains as people even now. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what being the tribal liaison actually means? Sure, yeah, so I am accountable to all of the tribes um, with lineal descent um, or cultural affiliation to the ancestors in our care. And so um, my job is to schedule with them, organize with them and um, uh, engage in consultation with them. Um, and what consultation means is whatever the tribes want it to mean. So if we meet in person, if if I show them the facility, we get their feedback on, on um, how to store, how to continue storing the ancestors, how to inventory them. Um, so once we have our initial consultations, um, we uh, conduct an inventory, which is um, similar to the federal NAGPRA process of repatriation. And once the inventory is published, typically tribes will be able to um, apply for legal transfer. So that's the act of receiving the ancestors back, um, the act of repatriation. Um, and because AB 275 is trying to fast track and guarantee the process of repatriation, um, we're already engaged in, in um, discussions on which tribes are interested in receiving uh, legal transfer. And um, 
there's all these terms like legal transfer, right? Which it's, it, it's just uncomfortable to use them because like you said, it's, it's not possible for me to reduce um, these people to just numbers on a spreadsheet, even though that's something that you know, will have to be done. And um, the whole thing about it is um, kind of icky in that way. But at the same time, I do have a background in um, tribal archeology. span And so I have done burial recovery before, and it was the same thing um, in, that, in that situation. It was like, why are we doing this? Why are we forced to do this? Why do we have to do can you build your museum somewhere else? Or can you build your subdivision somewhere else? You know, But of course, in California, um, you know, our people were so successful. Anywhere you throw a excavator, you know, you're gonna find evidence of how successful our cultures have been. Um, this is a paradise you know, to, to be able to live here. And, and before it was developed, it was even more so, right? So, um, anywhere that you dig a hole, you're bound to find some evidence. But part of what um, uh, being a tribal archeologist or um, working in, um, uh, being an indigenous archeologist, working in burial recovery or in this type of repatriation work, there's, although it's deeply painful, it's almost like we're continuing to care for them. It's that a horrible thing has happened and we can't go back in time, but how can we alleviate some of the suffering now? And how can, how can we provide um, a safe transfer back home? You know? And so I, I lean into that side of it more than the devastation of what has happened. It's like, okay, how can I make sure that they will be safe and they will be respected while they're in our care? You know? And there have been challenges. And like I said, the... Um, the, fac the faculty in the department, Dr. Sonseri and Dr. Roberto Gonzalez have both been um, really supportive. Um, that's awesome, thank you so much. Uh, you also mentioned your part-time uh, lecture. Um, what, uh, what do you teach here at San Jose State? Oh, so yeah, I'm a, I, I lecture in the anthropology department and I teach intro to archeology. span uh, That's awesome. Um, uh, so you know we probably have students who are who are interested in possibly taking your course. Um, so hopefully that continues as well. Um, so I, I would love to get into you know a little bit more about your journey into this work. Um, you know, obviously we're a college campus. Um, love to hear a little bit about your journey through college, through academia, um, and how you got to be where you are now. Sure. Um, I love talking about school. I'm a huge nerd for school, obviously. Um, which is funny because all throughout elementary and high school, I was a terrible student. You know, I, I didn't think that I was book smart at all. And so I struggled with attendance and um, behavioral issues, everything, you know, I, I went around from this school to that school, to this district to, you know, um, what was it called continuation schools and everything until I finally um, graduated and, went to community college. I went, I attended the local um, college here where I live in Monterey, um, Monterey Peninsula College. And I, um, I took ethnic studies, women's studies and cultural anthropology. And I wasn't sure which avenue I was gonna take for my major. And 
Um, Professor uh, Elias Carey at Monterey Peninsula College has, um, he teaches anthropology in a way that has a feminist perspective um, and he's just generally um, a really bright and compassionate guy. And so the way that he taught cultural um, anthropology was through a feminist and, you know, sort of a ethnic studies lens. And I really saw that anthropology could be a melding of all of those, right? It's like, it's everything that I wanted to know about the world, um, um, including the nasty bits, right? Including the terrible things. And um, how do we hold space for the terrible things that, you know, that has happened while looking towards the future and um, working with communities for solutions. So there was already an applied anthropological um, kind of framework to his classes. And I pretty much decided that first class that that's what I wanted to do and specifically to an applied anthropological program. And I had so much fun in my community college, um, you know, connecting with other people who are interested to, in being there and engaging in discussions and learning about um, kind of the collective human experience. Um, I wanted, I decided to pursue my, um, my education and get a master's degree so that I could teach at the community college level because I came into myself, you know, I felt in, in uh, community college. And so I, it took a long time. I come from a working class background, you know, so I've, I've never had uh, a lot of money. I, I had to work all the way through community college. So I had to do part-time school, full-time work. And um, by the time I got to San Jose State, I transferred. Um, so it was halfway through my BA program. And I learned that San Jose State had an applied anthropology graduate program. And so it fit in perfectly with what I wanted to do. And um, I had a lot of fun, again, going through the undergraduate program at San Jose State. A lot of the anthropology teachers are still here. Um, and most of them are really awesome people. And they're not just you know, passionate about what they do. They, they really um, go out of their way to make students feel welcome and supported. And um, so I appreciate those folks that now I get to call my colleagues. And then in um, in grad school in the applied anthropology program, it was it was it was really tough. It's a very challenging program, um, but um, I really got my footing as far as my career path went. Um, and it, you know, I don't I want to put it out there that because of my background, having to work um, like service industry jobs and restaurants, cafes, and stuff throughout college, I didn't really have any experience in the field of anthropology when I got to grad school. But a lot of my peers did. So they were already working in the field and they came back to school to kind of get um, uh, you know, an advanced degree to um, kind of bolster their career. Um, and so there was a little bit of insecurity in the beginning, right? And I do wanna, as a first gen college graduate, I do wanna put that out there for any other first gens that are, <laughs> that are listening. Um, uh, yeah, just stick with it because, you know, I, I was there for a reason and the reason was because I was passionate and I, you know, I wanted to serve the community um, in any way that I could. And I was able to connect with Alan Leventhal. He's a um, emeritus lecturer at San Jose State in the anthropology department. 
And he's also the Muwekma Ohlone tribes, um, tribal archeologist and ethnohistorian. And so we were engaged in a um, community project with the New Museum of Los Gatos. And um, they were collecting um, life histories for all of the um, Native American folks that live in Santa Clara County, but who took advantage of the federal um, relocation program um, and wound up in Santa Clara as a result of the relocation program. And so the relocation, uh, the federal relocation program was seeking to get um, tribal folks off of reservations and um, kind of assimilated into urban centers and urban American culture. And, um, you know, kind of counter to what we believe the, um, the, um, the desired outcome from the federal government is that when relocated, um, tribes came into these indigenous centers, what, what we find is that they seek each other out. And it's not just folks from their culture or from their reservation. It's what happened was there was this kind of um, coalescence of um, pan-Indian identity. And it happened in a really beautiful time um, in the 60s. Uh, well, it happened throughout. I mean, I think the last um, relocatee was like in the 80s or something very recent, really surprising. But um, yeah, it's a really beautiful story. Um, there's, a, there's a YouTube video about it too, so maybe you can share the link to that. Um, so in, in uh, volunteering for that uh, museum uh, exhibit, the New Museum of Los Gatos also um, provided uh, a, a separate exhibit for the Moak Ma'aloni to honor the indigenous people you know, whose land we are on. And, um, Whose, uh, whose land the, um, the museum was on. So they didn't wanna leave out the Muwekma from the greater exhibit. And so there's an exhibit on the Muwekma that I did with um, tribal um, chairwoman, vice chairwoman, Monica Ariana. So when I was working with them on that exhibit, they, um, they needed extra help. One thing that's really wonderful about the Muwekma story is that they do their own archaeological recovery. So anytime ancestors are found in, an, in a project, they, uh, they request to be in charge of the burial excavation. And so it's, it's really tricky work, obviously, um, because of the, the reverence that we have for ancestors. Um, there's also a reluctance, right, to disturb them any further. And even though, you know, someone has to care for them and take them out of harm's way, um, a lot of people don't like to do that work. And so if there's not enough tribal enrolled members, then they'll ask, um, you know, their, their helpers. And so luckily um, through Alan and other folks in the anthropology department, we've created this um, beneficial relationship with the Moak Maloney tribe. And so I was already working with um, the vice chairwoman, Monica Ariano on our um, exhibit. They asked me to um, be a tribal archeologist for a specific project in Sinol, which is in the um, uh, Alameda County. And um, that's where I, everything kind of struck me really hard about, um, you know, being face to face with ancestors and it was really um it was really challenging i was like trying to hide my emotions in the field because um again it's work that should never be done 
it's, you know, it, it shouldn't have to be done. And so somebody has to do it. And it's such a huge responsibility and kind of an honor to be able to be in that, um, what I refer to as like a caretaking role, right, for the ancestors. And um, so rather than focusing on how awful it is, you focus on the, the gratitude, you know, to be able to, to show the ancestors that you're caring for them and you're looking out for them, even after they pass on. So um, that's how I came into this work. <laughs> um, I had the really unique experience of working for a tribe as an archaeologist. Um, and that's, you know, that's how I learned that um, it should not be separate from descendant community. We should never conduct our work separately from the descendant communities. Um, and they should always be in charge of the research. They should always be in charge of um, the distribution of whatever knowledge is produced as a result of archeological research. Um, because anything short of that is just another uh, form of colonization. And that's against what I'm here for, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's how that's, I found my way. That's fantastic. That's I love that story. I think, um, you know, there there are all these bits and pieces in there about, you know, getting hooked on the learning aspect and being drawn into, you know, um, associating it with your worldviews and trying to figure out the world. I think a big part of college experiences is for folks to just try to figure out how the world works. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that kind of community care is so important and it's so easy in a, particularly in an academic setting to be stuck in this trap where you just think well you know knowledge is is a is a finite concrete thing and it just comes from the top right you, you were these empty vessels and, and 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 teachers just fill our brains with things but in actuality that's that's not really how it should work right it, it's community developed you know people all come in as knowers people all come in as thought leaders and, and is really just engaging in that conversation and building, you know, collective knowledge up um, from the from the bottom up. So, you know, that's awesome. And I love, I love kind of that process that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so uh, I would love to talk a little bit about your identities as, you know, um, you know, coming from coming from a multiple race background, um, and then also you know being native or indigenous identified, and how like your cultural journey was for you, and how you came to understand that for yourself. Yeah, so um, I think that um, being uh, from the working class, first of all, being a first gen college graduate, um, I think that had more of an impact in my journey than um, having a mixed settler and um, indigenous California ancestry. I think that a lot of people who have had, who know that they have third or fourth generation folks in California, um, I'm curious actually to, to know how many people have mixed ancestry because I see this as, um, another aspect of colonization is to kind of obfuscate our past and, um, you know, eliminate any remnants of indigeneity from our lives. And um, the more that folks can reclaim that identity, um, but not stepping on, you know, as a reconnective, 
reconnecting native, it's important for me to say that like, you know, you don't thrust yourself into the forefront of um, native <laughs> communities. Um, but I see my role more of a, a supportive role. If I can share my story um, with other folks who may be reconnecting, um, who may be coming into their indigeneity after um, leaving the community for whatever reason, or for people who aren't enrolled in their tribes for a, a myriad of reasons, um, you know, if there's something that I can do to help inspire or empower people to, to reclaim their indigeneity, then, then I'll be doing my job here. Um, and also in support of folks who have always been in the culture and who, ha who have had their um, identities kind of um, pushed to the forefront of their experiences throughout college or, you know, outside of school too. Um, but I think it's, um, it's the same as any uh, any minority status really is like hearing other people talk about you and your identity, you know, as experts and, and then seeing other seeing students receive the information in ways that maybe you don't appreciate, right. So like, one of the things for Native folks is that we often get lumped into just one monolithic catalog or one culture, you know, and as we know, I mean, there's more than 500 tribes in California alone, right? So, I mean, just think about that in terms of the, the, the nation and then, you know, the Americas includes, you know, right? North America, Canada, South America as well. So there is not just one native identity. So, you know, the fact that some folks live on reservations today without clean water, access to running water, you know, that's, that's a reality for Native folks. It's not a reality for all Native folks. And so, you know, we shouldn't take space up when we're talking about, um, you know, all Native experiences. Um, so I don't, I don't have that experience at all. You know, when in my community here, we live on um, Rumson Ohlone land that's currently stewarded by the Ohlone Costanoan Esalen Nation and the Esalen Tribe of Monterey County. So, um, a lot of folks have mixed Chumash identity in this area and mixed Ohlone, um, Southern Ohlone, Costanoan, and um, Rumson Ohlone, Esalen um, identity. And one thing that um, continues to amaze and inspire me is um, how we all, <laughs> a lot of us, not all of us, a lot of us share ancestry. And we have, you know, so-and-so's last name on this side of our you know, ancestry tree, or we have so-and-so's um, uncle who married our great-great-great-aunt, and um, uh, like m one of my more prominent ancestors is um, affectionately referred to as Mamita. She, um, her name is Mary Soto Marquez Dixon, and um, I'm sorry, Mary Dixon Marquez Soto, <laughs> um, and she's estimated to have over 200 ancestors in this area so that's one of our <laughs> one of our experiences is going to Safeway and being my mom being like oh Alicia this is this is my cousin she's a descendant of Mamita or <laughs> something like that and um, you know learning that even though we grew up in mostly a Italian-American family knowing that we have like tamale recipes and enchilada recipes and thinking like where does that come from? Oh, well, the Spaniards settled here, completely disrupted life for Native American folks, but Mamita, she 
she, um, she sold tamales at the Carmel Mission. So um, that's why we have a tamale recipe. And that's why some of my elders speak Spanish, you know, even though they're not necessarily Spanish, they're, they're indigenous. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think kind of that tracing that legacy of colonization imperialism is so interesting. And um, particularly, you know, I'm a big fan of like tracing food and, you know, where mm-hmm. food comes from and, and, uh, and seeing, seeing all that because food's such an important connection for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, that, that's amazing, you know, and I think, you know, that's something that I think a lot of, a lot of folks can relate to, you know, uh, particularly folks uh, from historically marginalized communities, you know, having that fractured family feel, you know, and being like, well, you know, I, I'm aware of the people I grew up with, but also like, you know, I have second cousins or third uncles or whatever out there. And, you know, you have the, this general feeling of like family and everybody's an auntie and everybody's a, an uncle, you know? And, and so that the kind of embracing of family and community kind of all at once is, is such a wonderful feeling. Totally. Um, so you mentioned, you know, that you, um, uh, you went through a process of kind of reconnecting with your identities and, and kind of in honor of your, um, your grandmother, your, um, you know, getting to know your family line a little bit more. Um, you know, for, for, for folks who may not have gotten to that point in their cultural journey yet, um, can you talk a little bit about like the strengths, the values, like, the, the importance of, of perhaps trying to approach that work? You know, what, what did that give you as a person to, to kind of go through that process? It's, it, for me, it was really a compulsion. I felt compelled to, um, to know these things. And it, it felt like traveling through time. It felt like you know, traveling through the past. Um, someone actually wrote a book about Mamita, our ancestor. And um, she was kind of like a local, um, uh, she just, everybody knew her. Everybody knew her in um, the, the area that is now Carmel. I was probably called Carmel back then too, but it was completely unrecognizable. Now Carmel is um, a very white, very affluent, you know, kind of- um, didn't they have a uh, Clint Eastwood as a mayor or something like that? Oh, yeah. Is that yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly okay. yeah, that's exactly um, what it is now. And you know, people come from all over to go shopping there and to play golf and 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 whatnot. But back then, um, when Mom, in Mamina's time, it was um, it was um, kind of ghettoized, and I mean that in the in the definition of the term, it was um, to exclude. Uh, any non-white people from Monterey. And so this includes at the time, um, any undesired um, uh, European immigrants. So Southern Europeans at the time, like Italians were not considered white um, until the 1940s or something on the census that it changed. Um, And this is a long legacy of, of, you know, racism and allowing people who fit whatever the definition of whiteness is at the time, right? That maybe that will be for another podcast, but um, uh, it's interesting because um, it's a huge fishing community. We're right next to the wharf here. And um, so in this attempt to have a, a, 
a, a white society, I suppose, in Monterey, it was not safe for people who were not considered white at the time to stay overnight. And so they would make this trek up the Carmel Hill from Monterey after a long day fishing, I suppose. And um, Mamita's house was a known resting point. She was kind of a working class hero <laughs> in a way. Um, she, uh, she was known to have coffee and tortillas ready for people. So there's the Spanish influence again, right? Why does a native person have um, tortillas being served? Well, that's the legacy of colonization around one, right? Because it was just Span Spaniards and then Mexico and then the gold rush happened and California became a state. And um, so, yeah, the, um, she's also probably the inspiration for Steinbeck's book, Tortilla Flats, although he never credited her, which may be part of the reason why my grandmother always talked a lot of mess about Steinbeck. She never said why, but she, you know, called him a drunk and this and that. <laughs> so not very nice, but um, yeah, if, if, if he took his inspiration from our ancestor, you know, we would like some recognition for that, but yeah, absolutely. But her legacy stands on its own. I mean, like I said, she has hundreds of uh, uh, descendants running around here and and we connect every now and then and um, we honor her you know we go to her grave site and there's always abalone and shell and, and flowers there so I know that um, that we're still honoring her uh, memory but yeah she was kind of a, a force to be reckoned with in this area and we see that um, through that ghettoization of Carmel at the time you have like, um, you know, you have uh, people from Mexico, you have um, obviously indigenous folks. She would often um, go dance with the Esalen, the Esalen community in this, in this area. And so there's kind of this uh, multiracial coming together in this area. And um, I think that's why so many of us have mixed Shumash and um, Esalen and um, Italian ancestry. Um, and I would love to uh, reconnect more with folks in this area about that, other than the people that I know, because we're related. Um, right. But I think that's really interesting. That's awesome. Is that is that book available for commercial purchase? The one I think so. Yeah, it's called um, it's called Mamita's House. Okay. Yeah, um, it's really short. It's a really simple book. Um, let's see. I would like to. <laughs> I would like to share the Santa Cruz Archaeological Society's um, uh, little write-up that they had on Mamita's house, A True Tale of Tortilla Flat. You can buy it on the website that shall not be named. Um, well, we'll find some good links. Maybe, maybe we'll direct people a little bit away from that place, but, yeah. but uh, we'll, we'll have it. We'll, we'll have some links so people can, can check it out. Okay, good. Um, uh, that's awesome. That that's fantastic. I think uh, it's such an interesting family history story, and and to have all of those ties, particularly with the land itself too, and be able to have those landmarks, um, and you know, say that like you know, you, your family then is is as big as it is, is so intrinsically tied to the land itself. Yeah, and that's something that I didn't get to in your question is that we're not sure at what point our family um, migrated from the Shumash homeland to Monterey County. Um, that's another thing about reconnecting is that 
it's well just like culture in general i mean it's never static you you never get to the end point okay this is it this is the end of our you know identity no it's always changing and it's always fluid and um the same thing is true with culture it's always changing it's never stagnant um but yeah the the work for reconnecting is never done you know you'll always you'll always learn something new you'll always meet a new relative you'll always talk to a new elder and learn a million things that would never have occurred to you you know and so yeah um, it's really that's, special that's, work that's awesome yeah that's awesome it's and then part of that like kind of reaching for your kind of uh, collective cultural knowledge and holding on to it and being able to teach that to the next generation too i think yeah. you know these are the lessons that we learn through culture and we learn them from our ancestors we teach them to our descendants and that's how we survive you know Absolutely. Um, so the last thing I would love to talk a little bit about is if we do have students listening to this, if we do have Native students in particular listening to this, Native or Indigenous students listening to this, um, uh, what's some advice that you might give in terms of students maybe finding success or uh, representation or just finding themselves a little bit? Um, well, What's already helped me tremendously is um, reconnecting with um, or connecting with other Native folks on campus. So I found um, the gathering of academic Native and Indigenous um, faculty, the Faculty Affinity Group for Native American Folks on campus, which has already been um, a huge support. And it's just nice to be around um, people who get it and who get you and, um, you know, so I would say, you know, seek out folks in the pan-Indigenous community and, um, you know, know that there are other people who need that community and need that connection just as much as you do. And, um, and don't expect to find it everywhere, you know, um, that's, that's a reality. You have, if it doesn't exist, then you have to make it and um, you don't have to do it alone. However, you know, find your helpers. Um, and um, as far as success, it's, it's so unique to each person. Um, I was never really concerned with making a lot of money, which is convenient because I went into anthropology. So <laughs> um, uh, um, I just, I knew that I wasn't gonna be good at school unless it was something that I was really passionate about. And what I'm passionate about is um, people and community and, um, you know, justice and restoration work. And I just, you know, uh, I loved school. I loved learning. I loved discussing ideas and um, especially with um, a justice framework. So I knew that whatever path it would take me on, it would be something that I cared about and that that would, um, that would be the definition of success for me is that whatever I was doing um, would be meaningful to me and fulfilling um, in some way so that I could give something back to the community. And, um, and teaching is definitely that for me, um, but also having these um, connection points into indigenous communities. And even if it's not my own, um, uh, I live here, you know, and I, I, I work with tribes here and I work with tribes where I I'm employed in San Jose and and 
being accountable to them and working in the service of, um, of their ancestors is um, a huge honor. And um, I'm grateful to all of our tribal consultants that, that keep me accountable and, and allow me the opportunity to serve them better. Um, and so, yeah, success has to come from what, draw, what you draw fulfillment from, you know, and, and, and what really speaks to your soul. And, um, you know, if, if making a lot of money is important to you, then make sure that you go into something that, <laughs> that, will, that will pay you for it. But um, really identify what keeps you going, what motivates you every day. And don't study something just for the sake of having those letters at the end of your name, you know, like study it because, because it's in you and, and you want to develop it even more. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm, I'm hearing that, you know, it's important to find community. It's important to form those bonds. And it's important to, to find passion in your work. And, you know, it, it's okay if what's driving you is financial success. That's a big mm -hmm. part of living in a capitalistic society. But absolutely. making sure that whatever that is going to be is still about your passions, about, right. you know, what drives you. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that that's yeah, fantastic. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing some time today, oh, um, sharing part of your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully, um, you know, uh, do you have ways in which students can connect with you? Yeah, um, um, I'm on the faculty website for San Jose State um, Anthro Department. Um, mm -hmm. They can certainly reach out to me through email on that page. Um, and um, they can leave messages on my office phone or whatever. And I'd be more than happy to meet with students um, for any reason at all. So yeah, don't be okay. shy. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And we'll, we'll have links down um, for those as well. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me today, Alicia. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you so much, Chris. It was my pleasure. Don't call it lost culture, call it revitalization. Languages are seed and we're growing through the pavement. Syllabic's the roots, dialect is our leaves. Flower is our power and community our tree. We come too damn far for us to ever give up. Now it's time to elevate each other, truly rise up. The only real battle is the battle within. Once you believe in yourself, then your journey will begin. My mother is sacred, she's a survivor for real. Though it's taken her and I so many decades to heal. Still we persevere cause we got dreams to fulfill. Like my sis equal said, success. Is a good kill. I be killing it and doing this amongst my sisters. Heal beside our men and truly educate the youngsters. They rely on us, and so we gotta stay tough. So make your offering with unconditional love.